brought back into Hebrews. Had a hoot. Probably for the next next I don't know however long, as long as they're in one Samuel in the morning, I suppose. There was so much to do and I wasn't quite sure what to do. I'd been reading and preparing. I thought I'd give you my notes. Put off my notes for you and then I'm going to talk through them. This is really just to keep Ross awake and anybody else. You don't have to pay attention. But if you're a visual person, the other Ross said that people are going to fall asleep tonight um, and he said it had nothing to do with the sermon. He said it had to do with... Um, water tonight. So can you hand those ones out? You don't have to have them if you don't want them. To help. If we run out, just mix and match. I just figured that in case you got lost, you could kind of work your way around where I was headed a little tiny bit. You don't have to read it. It's just to give you some sort of visual outline for those people who are visual type people. Let's just have a quick look, see who I'm talking to. Who's visual? Who needs to see it in a picture? Make sure those people have one. Who's auditory? Who has to hear it? Who doesn't learn anyway? kind of fortunate here because the other way of learning is to experience it and this one this passage is one of those in Hebrews because most of them have to do with how we learn the, the prequel I, I like prequels unless they're made after other stuff because then they're always worse than the first one but the, that's in movies. But the prequel here is verses 12 and 13 from Hebrews chapter 4. And um, let me just read that to you. It's something that we know very, very well and we, as good evangelicals, always look to it because it talks to us about the Bible and that makes us happy. But it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged or double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And here's the tough bit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the prequel, if you like, to what's coming up now is this idea that all of us, every single one of us, are, if you like, naked. Give me a few references to close sermon tonight, but we're naked before God. He sees us as we truly are. He says the word of God comes in and judges even down to our very thoughts and attitudes, to who we are right in the middle of us. And we're laid bare before him. And the writer of the Hebrews as, as he's saying this to people, understands that in their minds, as I think in our minds, we recognise that if we just there, bear before and he's the one who judges us, then we come under condemnation. 
we're not worthy. The only thing that is rightfully ours is hell. That's the prequel to what he says here. And he's talking to a group of people who love God. And this is the image that he's put before them. And he says then to the passage that we get to in chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, he says, if that's what is true, therefore you need to understand something. And from the end of chapter 4, verses 14, 15 and 16, summarise, if you like, what he's going to expand, not just in the next 10 verses of chapter 5, but all the way through to the end of chapter 10. He says this, Therefore, we're in the state where we can do nothing. We're bare before God and the only thing that is rightfully ours is to be condemned, to be judged. He says, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let's do a couple of things. Firstly, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He says, that's what we're like before God, but because that's our standing before God, what we need to do is hold on to what it is that we believe. Why? Because the one in whom we believe, Jesus, and if you remember the whole book of Hebrews is saying how fantastic Jesus is. He is the one who has gone through the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of Father. In the previous chapters, he's been... He's been designated God's king, the one who rules over all things. We have him seated at the right hand of the Father and he is our high priest. So hold on to what you believe in. And he's going to want you to hold on because he's now going to tell you what the value is in holding on to Jesus. Sometimes I think we wonder as we go through life, what's the point? being a Christian because being a Christian isn't easy and he's about to go through in the book of Hebrews to tell people they need to grasp hold of God continue with God keep meeting with the people of God and even though they go through terrible hardship Jesus is worth it and so he says here if you understand that you stand before God absolutely naked and he can see your very thoughts and the attitudes of your hearts and your total wretchedness continue to hold on to Jesus. Because we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he didn't sin. He's going to come and say Jesus is the one who now comes into that place of being our representative to God. What he's going to talk about in chapters 5 through 10 is how fantastic it is that Jesus is the one who is between us and God. And he starts off here at saying you need to keep hold of your faith in Christ. Why? Because the one who is there, when you're in a position of absolute wretchedness before God, before the one who can see absolutely everything is the one who stands between you and God 
understands and empathises all of your weakness and wretchedness. But he sympathises with you in that. And he goes on to say, Let us then, because we have this high priest, this one who is between us and God as mediator, in our wretched state, we would be tempted to flee, tempted to think he will never listen to us. Instead, hold on to what we believe in Jesus Christ. And he says, approach God's throne of grace. Come to him in your difficulty, in your need, in your wretchedness with confidence. There's a throne of grace. The king is the one who's reaching out in love. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Why? Why is it important to do this? So that we may receive mercy and find grace in our Here we are. If we're truly honest, God's word comes and shows us that we've fallen short of his glory, can't live up to his standard, we are wretched people, don't live within his kingdom as we should, and our tendency is to flee. Right to the Hebrew says, no, don't you understand? That Jesus here is your high priest. Jesus is the one who comes as the mediator between you and God. He understands what you've got. And the troubles and the tribulations, he understands everything that's happening to you. Help. So you have every confidence because you're coming through Christ to come to God. And not only do you have a confidence to hold on to that, but you can be certain that because of who Jesus is, you will have help in your time of need. This is the argument. I could finish there and you've got everything. He wants to, I'm going to explain a little bit more because hey, like I've done the work, it's another chance. That's it. I don't know about you, but I know that people don't always see everything that goes on inside my heart. They don't see everything that happens around me. My family might get a closer look than other people. But if you're like me, there are things happening to you, within you, around you that are a burden to you. And you know deeper inside your heart how away from God at times you might be, the way that you think and the way that you are. And our tendency in those situations when we're coming before God, done something wrong, we've thought something we shouldn't, we've acted in a way which is a rejection of our belief in Christ, we hide. We're just like Adam. Another reference to clothes. We're naked before God, so what does Adam do? Hides. Because that's our natural reaction. I don't know. <clears throat> when I go from the bathroom to my room, unless I know the house is completely vacant, I put the towel. And then if it's family, I can handle just the towel. But if there's other people possibly around, on goes the teacher. Why? 
because nobody gets to see this. Same with God. When we understand what we're like, we hide from people definitely. Hide from God. So who's going to help us in that situation? We've got things going on in our life. We've got relationships that are broken. We've got financial stresses and strains. We've got pressures on every side to turn against God, to continue on like the world does. And we think to ourselves, if we're like Adam and we're like the rest of what the Bible says humanity is like, we say, well, we really can't go to God. What the writer of Hebrews says is, no. This is the time you can hold on to Jesus. Believe in everything you've heard about him. And with confidence, not embarrassment, not not being honest, but in total confidence you can come to God and you can entreat him through Christ Jesus, through Christ to understand, to sympathize, been there, if you like, and didn't sin, and you can get help from the throne of grace. He then goes on to explain this in a little bit more detail, and I just want to do that if we can. So 5, 1, 5, 10, if you like, it's splitting it up into two parts. The first half, he kind of goes through what other high priests were like. Because if you remember, the book of Hebrews is saying why Jesus is better than all the rest. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron here. He's better than the high priest from the Old Testament. But he wants to show not only how Jesus is better, but Hebrews also kind of shows how Jesus is a fulfillment of everything else. What came beforehand was just a shadow. If you like, it was just a glimpse. like in the Old Testament high priesthood was like and if you thought that you had some access to God there let's have a look at Jesus let's see how Jesus is so much better now the first four verses pretty much go through what was the high priest position function sorry what was his function what was he supposed to do who was allowed to be high priest and what made them high priest, if you like. And we're just going to go through this fairly quickly. Firstly, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He basically says in the Old Testament, the high priest was there to be a mediator, to bring what the people could to God offer sacrifices, offer... Now, the gifts and sacrifices is just kind of a joint term. It's like good cattle. It's like boys and girls. It's not necessarily trying to make a huge distinction. It's saying that the, the high priest's role was to come before God as someone who had been set apart from, if you like, everybody else. Because not everybody could enter into the presence of God. And they were selected and then appointed and they represented the people. 
when we get right down to the bottom of the passage we're looking at in verses 9 and 10, he talks about Jesus' function. And he's going to show how it's so much bigger than that. Because the person of Jesus is so much better than the Aaronic. That the function of the high priest, that what this guy could do, has been made so much brighter and so much better and so much bigger by Jesus because Jesus is someone different, someone better. He's a fulfilment of everything that person couldn't be. Verse 2. That person, the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since self is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. One of the other things, the person who came was just a person like anybody else. But they had been set apart, chosen by God, although later on in Israel's history by politics, all right, to represent the people before God. And it says two things about them here. It says, firstly, they themselves were sinful. Therefore, they understood other sinful people and they were able to deal ignorant or had gone astray this person because they themselves at times were ignorant and had gone astray could deal gently with those people that's the first thing that it says and the second thing it says for this person because they themselves had sinned they had to offer sacrifices firstly for themselves if you like, to set themselves apart, to make themselves cleanse so that they could enter into the presence of God. Now, you'll notice over on the left-hand side where it's got the picture, I've got the guy dressed in his priestly thing, the next part about clothing. All right? This person had to actually not only offer a sacrifice, but he actually had to get dressed up in these clothes to make himself at least present. He didn't rock up in these clothes. If he wasn't wearing the right undies, true, he wasn't wearing the right undies, going into the Holy of Holies, he died because he hadn't clothed himself properly. Even though he had made sacrifices for himself, if you could like, he had to still cover himself to be able to go into the presence of God. That was his person because he himself very quick comparison, this is for those who, who enjoy these things, the word deal gently there, in the Greek have this idea of not get angry You know, I don't know, have you ever met people who've done the wrong thing, even if it's something you do wrong they do the wrong thing to you that you do to other people and you want to get angry with them because they've done the wrong thing, but because you've got some experience of it, you hold back your righteous anger your justice you hold it in. You know you should get angry with them, but you're very condescending almost and you hold it back in. Jesus is compared with this. Jesus doesn't hold back his anger. He doesn't treat us gently. The writer here says Jesus is so much better than that. He with our weakness. He understands. I don't know if you get the difference between those two, but I think that's fantastic. The high priest in, in, in the Old Testament, he would 
understand that other people were sinful because he was sinful, but he still, if you like, dismissed them. Gently, it kind of says, I, I should be angry with you. I am angry with you because wayward, but I'm a bit like you, and therefore I'll treat you. Jesus doesn't hold himself back from the wrath we deserve. What the writer here is trying to say is Jesus emphasizes. Not just someone who is holding himself back from smiting us, but he wants to wrap his arms around us in our weakness. And amazing picture the writer is even beginning to, to outline here about don't run from God. Don't run from him. Hold on to him. He's not a parent that you go to who you know has to say nice words because nine out of the ten words have to be have to do it. No. He's someone who just wants to. He wants to reach out. He wants to. That's who you're coming to. This high priest had his own sin. And then verses 4, 5 and 6 or 4, he says, not something that anybody said of himself. I think I'll come and be a mediator between you guys and God. It was an appointment by God for him. Then the writer of the Hebrews wants to now go through those three things and say and show us how Jesus is so much better than that. And the things that he's going to show that he's better than that in are things that he's trying to show in our minds and the writer's minds and the, and the reader's minds that will make us understand we can come to Jesus. We can hold on to him. And we can come knowing that he is going to be giving us those things that we need, the mercy, the grace. Verses 5 and 6, he he goes back to the Old Testament, back to the Psalms. Um, And if you remember from... We talked about some of this. Um, But he says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But in the same way in which God said, this is my son, all right, king, if you like, you are my son, today I've become your father. He also says, you're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to go through that in a lot of detail. If you want to go through it, talk to a number of people at Don Carson's um, lectures a couple of weeks ago. Put your hand up if you were there and you can explain that to people. Josh, Ken, Robert, so if you really want to go into where those two psalm things come from and how that all works out talk to Josh or talk to Rob to help you out and talk to Gary if you want to right? <laughs> they'll help you out with that or come and see me but it's very interesting to say but it's not, we don't need to cover it here today basically what he's saying is this isn't something Jesus has taken on for himself in the same way that Better than Moses is so much better than the angel. That same way, if you like, God has said, This is to be the priest. 
God has appointed him. And he's going to talk a little bit about why God appoints him for that. But he says, this is who has been appointed. And there's a reference here to Melchizedek, who in the Old Testament was both a king and a priest. And over the next few chapters, we're going to be looking at a bit at Melchizedek, so that's why I'm not going into it a lot tonight. But he's basically saying, Jesus was also appointed. But whereas Aaron was appointed by God to be high priest here, but that had to keep getting repeated. Saying, Jesus has been appointed once for all, our high priest, never ending. And if you go back to the psalm which it comes from in 110, there's this idea that this priest that we have is an unending priest. He's that much greater. He's amazing. Stand down to verse 7. This, if you like, is, is the crux of what he's trying to say. He says, Jesus is this fantastic example for us that not only do you have to understand that so much better than the priests of the Old Testament, but also even just in his life, he gives us this example of how we are to act. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, son though he was. Now, you notice I've kind of split it up a little bit. Greek's fascinating. It's one sentence from the beginning of verse 7 to the end of verse 10. That's one sentence. And so all the different bits and pieces are, are, are shifted around as to where, you know, all those things like objects and subjects and parts. Phrases, if you understand that, God bless. Um, but pretty much people try and work out where these things fit. The main part of this sentence from verse 7 through 10 is these two bits that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and that he was made perfect. Right? So he became the source of our eternal salvation. They're the two main parts of it and everything else kind of hangs on that. So this first point that I want to make is this Jesus is the one who, if you like, is made perfect by going through suffering. When it says that he learned obedience or that he made perfect, the idea is this. How do we know that Jesus is the best? What's Jesus' life like that's going to fit the task? Right here goes through this whole example. He says, you know, Jesus, when he went through his life, life wasn't easy. He didn't have it. He went through his earthly existence with cries and pleas. And he constantly came before God and asked for the help that he needed. Jesus was, he's going to go on to say, like us. He's human. He asked God, the one who could save from death. It's not just a reference back to Gethsemane. It's a reference to Jesus' whole life. And he's saying, Jesus, as he went, kept putting his plea to save him in the time of trial, in the time of difficulty, in the time of necessity, in the time He came before God and asked his assistance. And it says, 
can God help you? His it's because of his reverence. And I think the phrase, even though his son, actually goes at first part. What it's basically saying is, God heard him. Yes, he was son. Yes, he had this particular family relationship with God. That's not why God heard him. God heard him because he was without sin. Because he came in reverence and submission to God. And through his whole life, through all of the struggles that he went through, kept coming to God and he was helped. And he did. And so if you go back to what it said right at the end of chapter 4, he says, this is someone who understands and empathizes with us, but didn't sin. I think sometimes we think that Jesus wasn't really human because he didn't sin. And therefore he doesn't really understand. But pretty much what the writer is, I think, saying here is sinning. You don't have to sin to be human. It's not intrinsically a part of being human to be Because Jesus was fully human. And he went through everything with you. Now that doesn't mean he went through old age with the suffering joints. And he didn't go through some of those situations where we might think, oh. But he went through those temptations and those trials to references to Gethsemane in some ways where he's there and he's crying out before God, God, take this. It's too much. But your will, not my will. The writer here is saying through all of that, Jesus shows himself to be the one who is right to be our height. That's when he makes the very sacrifice that we need. He is still without sin. But he's the one who, not just the example of his life of coming before God and asking for help, not only his example, but also because he can now come before God as Jesus. Final stage of his earthly life. He doesn't have to be. He doesn't accept white robes and, and good hair. There he is naked. That's got it covered up because this is church and you're not allowed to have all the naked. There's most likely not even a pair of speedos on Jesus when he's hanging there. Completely bare before the world. With our sin on him, but in and of himself. And yet understanding us, understanding our weakness and understanding the amount of suffering we go through, the mental anguish we go through, the broken relationships we go through, the rejection we go through, the pain and physical suffering we go through, death in our families, whatever it is. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews would suggest that he'd be better than we will ever get. But he didn't break. 
But he comes before God as the high priest who stands perfect before him, but also someone who truly understands us and can bring us and our requests in him to God. And in the same way that every need of Christ was met, the writer is saying that we have the same confidence because we're coming through Christ. And therefore, everything we need in those situations, we can have confidence are ours in Christ Jesus. So in the end, what's his function? Just to present. In some ways, if you like, hoping that the punishment is put off or whatever it is. Verse 9, 10. Verse, he became the source of eternal Hold on for faith. For all who obey him, he became eternal salvation. Right up in there, which is going to come out a little bit later in, in the book of Hebrews, so we won't cover it now. But this idea that what he did in his sacrifice through his going through obediently to the end, he has provided way for all of us that we're not bare and naked eyes before God. Scriptures teach and we're actually clothed in the righteousness of Christ that his righteousness, of which he did no reason to be ashamed before God, is what clothes us. And so we can walk right up into the very presence of God, seeking the help that we need. Holding on to Christ Jesus, we don't have to turn away ashamed and think, he's not going to understand. Instead, right into his very presence, the scriptures say we can call him Abba, Father. We become his child because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So he becomes the very source of our salvation for all who obey him, hold on to him and cling to him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All the things that a high priest should be Total fulfillment is going to come out in the rest of Hebrews up to chapter 10. Christ can do this now. So don't run from him. Not for next week when we're going to talk about what comes. Stand firm. So don't back away. So don't turn away from Christ. Go forward with him. I suppose if you like, he thinks that Jesus is the centre of the universe. And that's where true reality is. And if you move out of the stream of the rest of the world, the, the centrifugal force is throwing you out constantly. says, no, keep drawing closer to Jesus. That's the tendency in the, in the stresses of life, in the burdens of life, in everything else is going to push you away from God. You're going to think, I can have nothing to do. Go closer in. Strong, keep firm, that even though it gets really because not only does he understand but he saves follow his example when you have a great burden in your life come to God 
struggling with sin, don't run from God, run to God. Come to him and say, going through that situation where you don't know what to do yourself, you don't have a way through it I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you can't do something yourself it's all the time and he says come to Jesus grab hold of him, grasp hold of him and say help because the one you're going to God through which is Christ Jesus he's been there He's done that in his life and he's had to suffer so much more than you will ever think of suffering. And he grabbed hold of God with and righteous and holy. And his righteousness becomes you, but also he gives gracefully to you everything you need to help. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But I probably could go through and chat with you and I don't understand what you're going through. I've been Because I was lonely at school, I was lonely about friends, but I had a family. Whether you, in a depth that nobody else ever will, rejected and despised by everybody, his closest friends denied him, his family rejected him, even his heavenly father. Yet he remained faithful and he had the strength and the writer to the Hebrews says hold on to him hold on to the faith that you have in Christ because you then have a go before God and he will supply it's not a throne of condemnation it's a throne of grace from loneliness can be spread to a whole range of areas whatever it is very simple message wherever it is that you find yourself whatever you're going through right to the Hebrews holds up this picture he's the one who will be God through Christ Jesus understands. There's times of difference. Now, for many of you, most of you, you're believers already. You know that. 
still tempted at times to run from Jesus. And the writer here is saying, don't do that. Unto him. Maybe some of you aren't yet Christian. You understand. Not a way that you can see through many of them. Well, the writer of Hebrews holds up Jesus and says, here is someone who went through stuff you for you everything you need. He will be the one who deals with it, who asks God to give you and bless you everything, and through him all of that blessing is yours. It means is that you can be like Christ if you but as you come through those things, even though they might at times get more difficult, God will provide you with it. That's who Jesus is. Now, if you're struggling with either of those tonight, come up and sit with you. If you've got a great burden on your heart and you want to come to Jesus tonight, as a Christian, as a non-believer. So I just want someone to pray with me. As much you want to say there, shift back. That will help you. You don't want to do that at the front? Well, when you go home tonight, lay hold of Christ because he is the one who can meet all. Father, I thank you that in your good purposes you sent your Son into the world that he came and he lived among us suffered as we suffer but without sin. Father, he did that unto death that he might be perfected that he might be just the one we need and if we hold on to him, accept us as you accept him. Graciously grant us all we need because of your mercy and grace. Father, thank you that you understand. You don't just put up with us, but you love us. Help us, I pray, to be faithful.